seeing the snow fall in there. It's very, very Christmassy, isn't it? But uh, my sister-in-law said, we'll go to the Toby Carvery. And she said, you're all right driving race. I said, OK. And I don't know if you're aware, but in uh, the southeast of England, London, it absolutely snowed last weekend. And uh, we went out on the Tuesday after there was a big freeze on Monday night. And, uh, you know, the car was slipping all over the road and great chunks of ice falling off of trees. don't know if you've ever driven through the Kent countryside. Um, and then we eventually got to this hill and it was just like looking into a mirror. I said, I don't, I said, I don't think we can go any further, do you? And she said, well, no. She said, I think we'd probably better go by the main road. She said, you're doing well, though. She said, I wouldn't have bought my car out in this weather. So... <laughs> <laughs> uh, Anyway, we're, we're not getting very far with Hebrews, are we? I think this is only the third, is it? The third uh, study of, of um, about 13, I think we've got to do. But uh, it's a bit of a shame it gets fragmented because this is, this is one tremendous book, isn't it? I mean, it's, it, it, it is a letter, and yet when you read it, it's more like reading an essay. Um, and it's only sort of just odd references to, to, to people and then at the end of course he lists a load of names which gives us this sort of title of a letter but uh, I honestly think I, I, I can't read this I did a we did a, a, a at our last church our, our th- when, no, Thursday evening Bible study and prayer meeting um, Baptist churches well our Baptist church used to have a business meeting once a month so every other Thursday in the in the month was always always Bible study and prayer meeting, so that meant three Bible studies a month, and we took about fifteen months to work our way through this book of Hebrews. Um, it's a it's a tremendous tremendous ex, ex, expose of, of scripture, and, and it's packed full from start to finish of Jesus, of Jesus. And I can't read it ever, any passage in Hebrews, without first of all going back to this first chapter and the first verse. And it's the first three or four verses. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And that's where he is right now. At this very moment, this this babe of Bethlehem, who who we celebrate so rigorously at this time of year, He's sitting beside God, still in his human form, in his resurrection body. But he is there, and he is there because of you and because of me. In fact, if he wasn't there, there would be no point in living. Certainly no point in dying. But that's where he is. And you know, this letter's written to a group of Jews, and we're not really sure why, but it, it's assumed, and, and from much of the writing, uh, that it was written to these Jews who were coming under pressure. 
Uh, it's getting pretty close, so most commentators think to the time very close to when the Romans sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. But also, of course, these Jews were suffering double whammy, really, because they were Christian Jews. So not only were they getting it in the neck from the Romans, but they were also getting it in the neck from their fellow Jews. And this writer is obviously quite worried that these people are going to turn back. Possibly even introduce some of the old Judaism into their newfound Christianity. And he writes this, this letter, this essay, you know, urging them to stand firm and to stand fast. And the first two or three chapters, he, 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 he's so much quotation from the Old Testament proving who Jesus is. Do you remember uh, Peter Glasgow's last sermon here from Isaiah? Um, you know, these prophecies from six, seven, eight hundred years before Christ was born, telling us of the Messiah who was coming. And he starts off this, this letter to the Hebrews in those first two or three chapters, summing it all up and giving it all. Um, and in that first two or three chapters, he talks about God's rest, entering into God's rest. It's a, it's a word in the, in the Hebrew, in the Greek, that we find very difficult to transfer uh, into English because rest is, is not a, a terribly good translation. You know, when it tells us that after six days, on the seventh day, God rested, you know, he didn't put his feet up. It's more, he entered into his fulfilment, his achievement of what he had done, his completeness. And that is what he talks about. He wanted to take, when the Jews were talked about going into the promised land and entering God's rest, it was the fulfillment of God's plan for them. And it's when we, when Jesus talks about us entering God's rest, he's talking about this, this fulfillment, this entering into God's fulfillment, the, the fulfillment of his plan for us. And the Jews never entered God's, God's rest. You remember, uh, I think it was Peter again, when he spoke of, of, of Joshua, when, they, when he led the people across the Jordan into, into Israel. Even then... They never entered God's rest, although there was a period uh, of, of sort of no war, but it wasn't God's rest. It wasn't complete. It couldn't be fulfilled because the scriptures and God's plan was always Jesus. It was always he was going to be the means of entering into God's rest. And when we become Christians, we get a sense of that rest. We get a sense of heaven here on earth. We're not fully entered into it yet. We've sort of got one, one foot in there, you know. And this guy is really telling them, as, as he writes this, this letter to these people, to these Jews, he's saying, look, you've, you, you've come this far. You've come this far. Don't give up on it now. You've got a foot in the door. And it's not an easy... Um, Passage because what we're doing, dealing with tonight is the uh, passage from chapter 4 and verse 14. I'll say it's not easy, so that if I make any mistakes, you'll sort of say, oh, well, it wasn't easy for Ray to preach on that one. <laughs> but chapter 4 and verse 14. And what, a, you know, what an exaltation this is, isn't it? Therefore, or now then, 
or so now. Now that we have this great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Great high priest who has gone through the heavens. Strange that that's in the plural, isn't it, really? doesn't say he's gone into heaven, but he's gone through the heavens. No doubt if you're a Bible study, a bit disappointed this morning. It seemed to me that most people know more about the sound of music than they do about scripture. Not there's anything wrong. It's not a criticism of what you did with the sound of music this morning, but isn't it? Why is it when we come to a, a, a quiz evening and the bit that Christians fear most is the Bible quiz? And as we look at this, I'm just throwing that in because this is what this, this, this writer to the Hebrews is dealing with here as we get a bit further down. But we have this great high priest, this son of God. And you may recall, I went off beam a bit, didn't I? You may recall there was a time when Paul wrote, when he had that vision, that dream, and he dreamt he was in the third heaven. I wonder how many heavens there are. But now we have this great high priest who has gone through the heavens right into the very throne room of God. Seated at his right hand. No more the need, that's why he sat down, no more the need to offer daily offerings. He doesn't have to keep getting up and sitting down. He can sit down because the offering has been made once and for all. And there he is. Do you ever get up on a Monday morning and think to yourself, you might be the topic of conversation in heaven this morning. God might be talking to Jesus about you. I think it's that personal. I don't think that's being flippant at all because that's his purpose of going there, to intercede for us. It was just a matter of contrast, really, but when Jesus, you remember when they lowered the man through the roof for his healing, Jesus forgave his sins and said that he had been given all authority on earth to forgive sin. That was in chapter 9 of Matthew, but in chapter 28 of Matthew, Jesus now had all authority on earth and all authority in heaven. Yes, he came to us. But what are we to do with this? This great high priest who has gone through the heavens... seated at God's right hand. Not one who is unable to sympathise, because he can. It's strange, isn't it, this this mystery of the incarnation. That the Son of God 
is able to sympathise with us because he has been tempted in the same way as we are as humans. This Son of God who is both wholly human and holy God. Tempted just as you and I. But he was without sin. Because although he was born human, he was not born with the inherent sin that we are born with. I don't find it difficult to sin. And I can tell you, you don't either. Because it's within us, it's how we're born. We have this inherent sin. But you see, even as a human, as holy human, Jesus wasn't born with inherent sin. So although he was tempted in the same way and faced that temptation, and he could have sinned, but there was no sin within him. So he had to be tempted. Mystery of the Incarnation. I don't have to be tempted to sin. Very often it comes quite naturally. Because I'm a sinner. But God certainly brought out the heavy guns with Jesus. Very interesting, isn't it? And I don't know if you've ever sort of taken too much notice, you put bits and pieces together, and certainly when you're preparing some kind of sermon. God's last spoken words to Adam before the fall was, do not eat. Satan's first words to Eve was, did God say? God's last words to Jesus when he came up out of the river Jordan, having been baptised, this is my son. Satan's first words to Jesus in the desert were, if you are the son of God. He's a tricky customer, Satan, but he's only got, he's pretty one-dimensional, really. But these were the big guns. (coughs) Satan really, when we talk about Satan, yes, it's good and evil, but, you know, I don't know that Satan bothers with small fry like me because I'm born a sinner, a sin is within me. I can't make the excuse. I can't make the excuse that Satan made me do it because I do it quite naturally. And that is why I need the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ to, to cover my sin. But of course it was different for Jesus. <coughs> tempted as a man to overcome sin, otherwise he'd not have been tempted as we are, but he was found without sin. And we're exalted to approach the throne with confidence. The old authorised person used to use the word boldly. But that doesn't mean you come before the throne with a swagger, because it goes on to say that we approach it with boldly or we approach it with confidence. Why? To receive grace. And mercy. And that's where our confidence lies because when we approach Christ, when we approach God's throne, we can be sure of receiving grace and mercy. 
And that's where our confidence lies, not in ourselves. It frightens me sometimes when I hear a flippant sort of way that some people pray, that they've taken this, this verse so wrongly, let us come before the throne boldly, let us come with confidence. No, the confidence is in God and what he can offer us, not the way we come before him. But we can be sure that when we come before him, we can have the confidence in him that when we come before his throne, we will receive grace and mercy. That's where our confidence lies. He goes on in chapter 5. I won't read it all. But every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God to offer, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. And then it goes on the next few verses explaining that these, these high priests, these human beings, could sympathise with the people because they were just ordinary people. Although they came from the line, um, although I think by the time of, of this writing, the, the idea of the priest coming from the line of Levi had some, you know, gone somewhat awry. Um, but they were people who would inherit uh, although I think with the, the situation that it was, a lot of them bought themselves into the situation. Um, and there was so much corruption, even in, the, in, the, in Judaism then. Um, but these people were just ordinary human beings, so they was able to sympathise with the people, you know, well, you know, give me your offering, I'll take it in, and we'll say a few prayers and we'll get you, get you sorted. But they was able to, to, to help and to sympathise. And now this Jesus really... Yes, he is a bit special, don't get us wrong, he is the son of God, but he's, even though he is that, and even though he has gone through the heavens, he is now seated at the right hand of God's throne, he is still able to offer this same service that your priest did. That's what he's there for. He's gone to intercede with God on your behalf. And he just goes on and then, verse 7, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions, loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and was designated by God to be the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. I'll leave Melchizedek to David Herring next month. <laughs> But it's an interesting to be here because it's a, it's a tremendous um, insight. Jesus had to learn obedience. That's a killer, isn't it? But you see, he was born holy man and holy God. <coughs> and when he faced the temptation, he became perfect. But now, he had to learn to obey. And you remember, it says there about the loud cries, and it's referring uh, pretty obviously to the Garden of Gethsemane. And you can remember how he cried out to God that if there's any way that this, this that won't happen, if there's any way that I don't have to go through this, but not my will, your will be done and in those words he became the perfect lamb of God for the perfect sacrifice 
Thy will be done. And once he was made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. The source of eternal salvation. There is no other way. There is no other way. Jesus Christ became the source of salvation. And then verses 11 to 14, he gives us a a little bit of a pastoral ticking off, really for being lazy, isn't it? We have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. The actual translation to that would actually be closer to your cloth-eared. You're really not listening. You're not interested, really. You're quite happy taking on board what you've learned so far, but you're not, you, know, you haven't gone any further with it. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Most ignorance of God's word comes from sheer bone idleness. People say, oh, there's so much about the Bible I don't know because I haven't read it. A bit different when you say, I can't understand it, but people don't know. Have you ever watched some Sunday morning? Not that it's, it's a, a necessity, but have you watched some Sunday mornings here when perhaps Steve will do, or Jonathan does the, the thing, and he says, find, you know, 1 John 3, and people go straight to the index. Simply don't know what they're looking for. Ignorance of the word of God is no excuse. And it, basically, it, in my experience, it's simply because people do not read it. I can always remember the old London City missionary who was a friend with Harry Valance. Asked me if I had any Bible notes. I said, yeah, I'll read, I'll read Daily Bread. He said, well, if you live on Daily Bread, you'll starve to death. Because if that's all you do, then you're never really going to get to grips with the word of God. And this is what he's writing here. I mean, some of these guys, I mean, we're probably looking at a letter that was written, I don't know, 30, 40 years after Jesus. And some of these people, obviously, because he wouldn't be telling them off if they were new to the faith. And he's saying, some of you haven't moved on at all. You're still living like babies. You're still drinking milk. Some of you that are still learning should be teachers by now. Very often it is just simply bone idleness in not picking up God's word and reading a good chunk of it every day. I don't mean just skipping over the words when we read it. And if there's something you don't understand, then find somebody and find out. 
But he's given them a bit of a ticking off here. And, uh, you know, come on, man up, he's saying. You, you won't move on. You will find it difficult to go on in the Christian faith if you're not looking at God's word. If you're still drinking milk instead of uh, feeding on the meat of the, of the, of the word. And then he goes on in chapter 6. Oh, last page. <coughs> chapter 6. Uh, and this, you know, uh, there's a degree of sadness in this. I will read it. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ. I'll deal with it a little bit because it... Leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death, and of faith in God, instruction about baptisms and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. He's not saying forget it. He's not saying forget these things, obviously. But you lay a foundation, and your foundation is in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, your repentance, and the forgive it, you know, the repentance from all those acts that, uh, that, that lead to death and of faith in God. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, that foundation is laid. I don't go around my house every day digging around it to check the foundations. They're there. They're holding my house up. And it's a bit like that with what he's saying here. I mean, I don't go out physically thinking every day about my faith in God. It's there. That's the foundation. I don't keep going back to that. But you see, a lot of Christians do. They never really move on. And that's what he's afraid of here. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought... And if they, sorry, who have tasted the word of God, and if they fall away, it's impossible to be brought back to repentance because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Can you lose your salvation? I don't believe so. My own personal take on this is he's talking about people who never knew Jesus Christ. Because you see, Christianity is not about works, it's not about experience as these people had done, had these experiences. It is about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Nothing more, nothing less. All that goes on around us are the, the peripheries, but our Christianity is based in him and him alone. And if you have that relationship with Jesus Christ, you will never turn from it, and he would certainly never turn from you. But if I had a pound for every person that I've seen sitting in any church that I've ever been in who this day are nowhere near Jesus Christ, I'd be a rich man. 
I can recall my father's eyes welling up as he spoke to a young man named Jim Higby. And, and it's, it's still vivid in my mind, but I, I don't know, I think I was about nine or ten. And I can remember standing there, and, and young Jim had come up through Sunday school, through Bible class, through the uniform movement that we run at our old mission. He then went into the forces, into the Air Force. In fact, he worked at the same insurance company as Ivy worked at for some years. He came out of the Air Force, took on the, the leadership of the youth movement that we ran. And then one day he turned up at our mission. I think he was probably about 23, 24 years old. And he said to my dad, I can't keep up the pretense any longer. These are the sort of people he's talking about here, the people who experienced it. They've been part of it. They've mixed with other Christians. And it's frightening, isn't it, when it says here about, uh, what is it? Shared in the Holy Spirit. But you see, the Holy Spirit isn't your salvation. Jesus Christ is. And if you haven't experienced Jesus Christ, then you're not a Christian. So these people, gone. And if you look in John, I've got the reference here somewhere, but my notes have gone. <laughs> if you go to 1 John chapter 2, I think it is, he also talks. He actually refers to them as Antichrist. Some have gone out from among us, but they weren't part of us anyway. And churches. I wouldn't say they're full of such people, but there's a good many of these type of people in our churches who would profess it, who play the part. And very often they don't even know that they're playing the part. They think, because they have a certain amount of knowledge, and some of these things are happening to us, they've, you know, they've once been enlightened, they've heard the word, they've tasted the heavenly gift where they've been with other Christians as, as, as God has blessed their work and they've seen what's going on. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. Well, of course they have because other Christians have shared in the Holy Spirit and they've been in the group. They've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. But they've never known Jesus. I think he's, dare I say this about the word of God, he says it's impossible to bring them back to repentance. The thing is here, we're not talking about a little bit of backsliding or even a, you know, even a, a deliberate sin. We're not talking about that here. We're talking about people who have literally turned their back and gone away. And the difficulty that these people face in coming back to repentance is this. I don't know if you've, you've ever really studied the, the story of Moses with Pharaoh. But if you have, you will notice when God says to Moses, you'll go before Pharaoh, he won't let my people go. And as it goes through it, the first four plagues, it tells us that Pharaoh hardened his heart. But when we get on to the fifth, sixth and seventh and eighth plague, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Can you see that? People turn away and they, they, they've hardened their heart to it 
But eventually, God will say, no more. He's not, a good of in, he's not a God of infinite patience. And that's why it becomes impossible for these people to come back to repentance. And that's why it's important how he's driven home this, you know, this, this knowledge of Scripture, this, this getting hold of the meat of Scripture, not just living on milk. Because if you're living on milk... going to die, you're going to fade away because nobody could spend their life living on milk. I must admit when I first read that I thought to myself, goodness me, you know, these people have tasted the good things, they've enjoyed, they didn't, they've enjoyed Christianity, they, they've, you know, possibly even fooled the other Christians in the church. I don't think God will look too cleverly on that, but it's, it's, it's simply because they just haven't grasped it. And, and our salvation, it's, it's so important, isn't it, to grasp that our salvation is in Jesus. It's in Jesus alone. And that's the, the whole story of the, of, the, of the new covenant. You know, the law, it goes on in, in the Hebrews as he goes through it, talks about a better way, a better covenant. Because you see, the law was never a substitute for repentance. Just offering up, you know, sacrifices, praying, worship even, you know, and all the the finery that went with it. It's never a substitute for a repentant heart. And our Christianity lies in Jesus John often talks, mainly in John's Gospel, but you'll read it in other passages, this phrase, in Christ. We find ourselves in Christ. Now, I'm no, you know, grammar, but it's, it, it's, a, it's written in the present tense. It's, it's sort of into Christ. And, and the, the, the translation, is, is, it's like diving into a swimming pool. Being submersed in Christ. The old covenant didn't bring fulfillment of God's promise of rest. Christ is the fulfillment of that covenant. The old law is redundant because it could never, never be a substitute for a repentant heart. I've just finished. Don't hang about too long now. But. uh, Just finish with with, uh, reading from Matthew here. And it's... uh, Trouble is, we never know the end of some of these stories, do they? It it leaves us to to work it out for ourselves. But standing still is not an option in the Christian faith. You're either going on with Christ or you're falling away. As somebody once said, it's one step to eternal salvation but at the same time, one step to eternal damnation. But the story is this. You'll know it well. Where are we? 28? (coughs) I've got the wrong reference. Anyway, never mind. 
<coughs> my computer skills. The story um, when Jesus was debating, um, and the teacher of the law asked him what the most important, or Jesus was asked what the most important commandment was. And of course, he said, you know, to love the Lord your God with all your heart. Or the second is like it. And the, the teacher of the law said, well, well, well answered, Master. Well answered. It's a, it's a good answer. You're absolutely right. It is important to love the Lord your God with all your heart. Jesus answered to him, You are not far from the kingdom. You are not far from the kingdom. But there's a worldly saying, isn't there? A miss is as good as a mile. It's just one step to eternal salvation, one step to eternal damnation. Our Christianity, our faith, is in Jesus Christ, nothing else. And as the writer goes on, it's a, it's a fabulous book, really. Read it. Study it. But he writes to these Jews who are uh, they're struggling. And in many respects, it's their own fault that they're struggling because they haven't really moved on. Some of them, one or two are stronger. But these that have fallen away, you know, you get to that stage where you harden your heart and eventually God says, okay. And he won't allow your heart to become soft again. That's why it's impossible for some to return repentance. Now, don't get me wrong. I've known that. I've heard testimonies of people who have, have, have gone away, backslidden, backslidden for years. But they haven't actually rejected God. In some respects, they're still sort of clinging. There's still that at the back of their mind that they need to, to repent. And if that's there, I believe that God will allow them to do that because, you know, he's a good God. Make no mistake. But people will harden their own hearts. But at the same time, if your heart is soft towards God and you've had a repentant heart and your salvation is in Jesus Christ, it is certain. It is sure. You won't lose it. And you can go on this this. You can experience part of God's rest here on earth that Jesus Christ brought through his death and his resurrection. And the fact that he now sits at God's right hand interceding for you and for me. We'll just close in prayer. I've gone on a bit, sorry. Our loving Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. That you have sent your son who came into this world to die for all. And we know, Father, that all men hear your call. That many respond. But, Father, we also need to recognise that there Is salvation in only one? 
And I guess through the years there have been many reasons for the Christian faith and people to find attraction with the Christian faith. Whether it be for the fellowship of the church, having friends and family. Whether it be through the way of worship. Whether it be through good preaching. But it's not in those things that salvation lies. That is only in Christ. But Father, we would pray this evening that particularly in our own church, if there are those who find the attraction here other than in Christ Jesus, that you will indeed just, in your grace and in your mercy, you will indeed allow them to boldly approach your throne to find the rest in the Lord Jesus and salvation in him. And Father, also help us as leaders, as as senior Christians, as it were, to be aware of the needs of others. And if we see those in need of help, Father, just make us aware. And then give us the ability to move alongside and encourage and teach them the way of salvation. So Father, now we just pray that you will dismiss us with your blessing. And as we each go our own way, that you will keep us safe and well until we meet again. In the precious name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.